Hi, I'm Nikki Schrera, and you're listening to The Jazz Session, the original jazz interview podcast. This is episode 595 for the 13th of April 2022. Tierney Sutton is a Los Angeles and Paris-based vocalist with a sensational career under her belt and much more to come, I might add. She has released 14 albums, nine of which have been nominated for Grammy Awards. Her 15th album comes out on the 6th of May 2022 and is called Paris Sessions 2. Like the first volume, it features guitarist Serge Merlot and bassist Kevin Axt, but this time flautist Hubert Laws joins the fray, and the results are both intimate and musically richly rewarding. Tierney and I talk about her work on Clint Eastwood's film Sully, her reverence for great songwriters, including her friends Alan and Marilyn Bergman, her newfound love for producing other vocalists' albums, and her brilliant in-between song banter. Here is our conversation. I knew I loved you before I knew you. The hands of time would lead me to you. And Sutton, welcome back to the jazz session and thank you for being here. Oh, I'm so excited to be here and I'm thrilled that you are the new host. I, I did this with Jason before and he was wonderful, but he did well to pass it along to you. Well, that's very kind of you to say. And it was 10 years ago, it's actually 11 years this year that you were on this show chatting to Jason. So, yeah. It's, it's yeah. a decade plus, which is quite a thing to take in 
to consideration. And we're here to talk about your new album, which will come out imminently after this airs. And it's a really beautiful, intimate follow-up to Paris Sessions 1. And this is Paris Sessions 2, or perhaps we should say Paris Sessions 2, if we're going to be... <laughs> Exactly. I haven't, I, I, I haven't perfected in any way my French pronunciation, but um, I'm working on it. Well, I, duh, I think, I mean, even I can duh. get that. So, duh. yeah, duh. Um, oui. So it's been five albums. When you chatted to Jason, and I'll keep referring back to it because it's a fantastic interview, and I really urge people to go into the jazz session archives and go and listen to it. You were here to discuss American Road, which was a Tierney Sutton band beautiful album and that came out in 2011 and you've had you've released five albums since then which is a tremendous outpouring of music and thank thank you for it oh well thanks for caring (laughs) there are not a lot of people I care about but your music I definitely care about and part of the reason is because I'm always so interested to see what you're going to do next when it comes to interpretations, when it comes to the composers and lyricists that you cover. And there's been a tribute to Sting, a tribute to Joni Mitchell. There's been a soundtrack for Clint Eastwood, his film Sully. And I saw that film when I was back home in South Africa. Oh, that's cool. I think I did email you afterwards and I said, it was such a treat. And the soundtrack is beautiful and your work on it is just superb. But to hear your voice coming out of those massive cinema speakers with Tom Hanks' fabulous mug on the screen, it was completely surreal to me. Yeah, and surreal to me, too. I remember that the weekend that the movie came out was also the weekend that we released the Sting Variations album. And I remember thinking to myself, well, more people will hear my voice in the next weekend than have ever heard my voice in my life. I don't, I don't know that it made any difference in my career really, but, but, but I was just thinking, well, I'm, I'm, and, and it's, it's funny because, um, my ex-husband and I had this running joke about Clint Eastwood where I would say, I am seeping into his subconscious because many, many years ago, I think it was probably 15 to 20 years ago, I was singing in a jazz club in LA with a big band. And Clint was there, and um, and my ex, I think, was playing in the big band because he's a great trombone player. And I said to him, or he said, "Oh, Clint Eastwood is here. He'll he'll hear you, and maybe he'll put you in one of his movies." And you know, blah blah blah. I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And when I got up to sing my song, he was at the bar, and somebody was talking to him. And so the whole time I was singing the one song, you know, it's a big band album, so you get up and you do one little thing and you sit down or whatever. And so um, my ex, Alan Kaplan, said to me, yeah, you know, somebody was talking to Clint the entire time you were singing. I, I don't think he heard a note. And, and so after that, I said, don't worry about it. Don't stress. I am seeping into his subconscious. <laughs> and you <laughs> and, did. And I did. And, and um, you know, 10, 15 years later, I made sure that, that Alan was on the orchestra session. We were already divorced by that time, but I made sure that Alan was on the uh, orchestra session for the Sully uh, soundtrack. And it was a really, really uh, wonderful, wonderful experience. And I'm still in touch with Clint. So I love that because also that is such a cinematic occurrence in one's life. And it's the sort of thing that 
some people live for. Certainly, you know, the idea anything could happen, anyone could hear you. And Clint Eastwood is such a synonymous kind of Hollywood movie name. I love that, Tierney. Yeah, but it's it's funny because um, I think living in this town, you never know who's going to be in the audience. And, I, I, you know, I had, by the time Clint called me, I had gotten really, really jaded about this stuff, you know. And uh, a friend of mine, Terry Trotter, great, great pianist, uh, was friends and had taught Clint's girlfriend, Christina Sandero, who's a pianist, um, a, a little bit of piano. And, and he said to me one day, Terry said to me one day, you know, who's a big fan of yours, Clint Eastwood. And I said, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, we had done, the band had done a private concert for Clint at his... Um, his country club after the Monterey Jazz Fest one year. Um, but other than that, I hadn't really heard from him or, you know, really didn't really think much of it. And and I didn't believe it. But then he started to kind of stalk me a little bit. You know, he started to show up. Like every time I would sing in LA, there'd he be, there he'd be. And then I bonded with his girlfriend, who's become a very good friend over the years. And anyway, we've, we, we just, he one day called me up and said, would you guys come and look at some of the music that, that I've been using, Christian, Jacob, and, and, and me? So we did. And it ended up to be that. So expect nothing and be really happy when it happens. And the, the, the one other thing I'll say about this is that experience was definitely a tribute to the band being together for 20, almost 25 years at that point and being able to put together the bones of a score in literally uh, three days. Because we decided, we, 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 came, we came to the realization that he was asking us to score the movie on Thursday. And we were in the studio with him recording the, 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 the Tierney Sutton Band to picture on Saturday morning, the following Saturday morning, because that's the way films work. And especially with Clint, he just decides what he wants and bang, bang, bang. Christian had a few weeks to write the orchestral score and we were able to add a few things, but the bones, the bones of the ideas that we did, uh, we put together in literally 72 hours. <laughs> and and we realized the day of the session that because um, Clint's people were working in a studio that they'd never worked in before, that we weren't going to be able to overdub. And I wasn't really isolated. So, so, so we came out after the first couple of attempts and we said, okay, what this is, is we have to do this live because we're not, because Tierney's not really properly isolated and we just have to do this. <laughs> so we did. So it was, it was really one of those things where if we didn't have 20 plus years of collaboration and shorthand between us and a ton of road chops, we would never have been able to get through it. Unreal. So it was kind of crazy. I love getting that insider information about it. And if people haven't seen the film, it's a fabulous film. It's called Sully. And the soundtrack is just such a, it's 
beautifully woven into it as Clint's sound scoring and soundtracks often are and this is no exception so and there's a great album and this was this was the greatest part of the whole experience was that Clint kept saying record it it may not make it in the movie but record it record it so he just he was with us every step of the way and was such a champion of it and was really um, another member of the band in conceiving exactly what we were going to do and um Varez Saraband put out a, a CD called Sully Music Inspired from the Soundtrack. And we were able to put in everything that we had put together that didn't make it into the soundtrack. And it's and and Christian wrote a nine-minute overture. Uh, and it's it's stunning. It's stunning. And he did it in such a gorgeous way where he had little improvisational features for every member of the band. And uh, anyway, it's it's something to check out. subject tyranny of that idea of expect nothing and I guess receive in abundance which I love being a musician or being in the arts in any way shape or form is a roller coaster there are high highs there are low lows there are plateaus in between where you just think all right I suppose I should be glad that I am neither up nor down but they're hard to kind of just get through and add to that that you've received eight Grammy nominations and is it eight? Uh, it's nine, but who's counting? So, okay. okay, I'm counting, but no, never mind. Okay, so there we go. So this is the question. You, you've received nine Grammy nominations, and to put that into a context, you've released 14 albums. So that's an those are unbelievable odds. I'm bad at maths, but even I, I can appreciate that. Well, and it's it's cool because, um, and and I'm 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 sure my record is soon to be broken, but um. But no, no, but 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 I've been lucky enough to get a uh, get nominated for every album I've put out for the last 15 years, which is really, really wonderful and lovely. Um, you know, so that's it's really great. And if I never get another one, I'll be very, very, very happy and, and pleased just as things are. I don't have it's really it's really okay yeah, it really is an honor well then you've half answered my question which is how does the how do those sort of acknowledgments and accolades because they are you know the nomination alone is such a huge acknowledgement that people listened and people thought about what you did and they weighed it up how do those affect you and how do you feel about the roller coaster nature of being a jazz musician and the fact that, you know, being in L.A. colors it in a certainly in a different way. You also now split your time between L.A. and Paris, I should add. And I would imagine being in Europe equally has these sort of percolating perimeter thrills. Well, it's, you know, I think being a jazz musician is its own, its own reality. And L.A. is the same as everywhere else when you're a jazz musician, you know. Um, I didn't really start my career in earnest until I was 30. 
And I didn't start making albums really seriously until I was almost 40. So I came to this, so I, I wasn't doing this, you know, in any kind of really serious way super early in my life. I mean, it, it was right after college that I knew it was what I was going to do, but I was kind of slow to get started. I had an illness and a lot of things sort of slowed me down a little bit. But um, the point is that the entire uh, way that I look at it and have looked at it from the beginning is that the best part of this is being able to do the thing. And I don't expect to get paid a lot of money to do the thing. And I don't expect rewards for doing the thing. Um, I just am honored to do the thing with people that are great at doing the thing and help me get better. And I found those people in LA. And so I moved to LA because I had access to great musicians that I could collaborate with, which is the, the essence of what being a jazz musician is. Uh, I mean, I was listening to your interview with uh, Terrence Blanchard, and he was talking about, you know, what Art Blakey did, which was to have the guys in the band write and arrange and be a part of things. And that, that's, to me, the nature of how this really, really works its best. And I think I'm a little unusual in that singers traditionally haven't thought as much that way. You know, singers traditionally have been like, well, this is my repertoire, this is what I do, and if you're going to be in my band, you'll pay, play what it is that I do. And I've never really had that philosophy. I've always wanted to find what it is that will invest the people that I'm working with, whoever they are, and hopefully they'll be great musicians. So this is a pretty humble art. I mean, it's just humble. It really, really is. It's not really a roller coaster because it never goes up to the real, you know, like doing things with Clint Eastwood, that's that's a cool thing. And, and, and hanging out with him, I mean, there's fame and there's Clint Eastwood fame. You know, when you hang out with Clint Eastwood, and I've had dinner with him many times, and in Paris, we had dinner uh, a couple of times too. And, um, you know, the way people react to him is just, it's weird. And so compare that to how people react to um, Wayne Shorter or the, the, the you know, icons of our music and how they react to them is they don't know who they are. You know, the general populace doesn't even know our heroes. And so I, I just, from the beginning, I've known that it isn't, it's not really a fame game because the people that are my biggest, biggest, biggest heroes in the world are not famous, not, not Clint Eastwood famous. And so the thing is that I think there's a kind of normalizing humility to being a jazz musician. You're a worker, and, and the biggest reaction that I've had to being nominated for Grammys is, cool, maybe they'll let me do this some more. And that's kind of it, you know? Because it's fun to do, and, and it's what I think I should be doing with my life, as, as far as I can tell. That's a great answer, and I will say that echoes um, beautifully what Theo Blackman also said, which is, you know, it's a privilege to do it, and if you're lucky enough to do it, however you make it happen, that's the thing. But I will also say, <laughs> you're, you're and my friends in the New York Voices, I mean, they were like, jazz is niche. 
But just think about how niche vocal group jazz is. So it's this niche, niche thing. Yeah. No, God bless them. Yeah. And they've been at it for a long time and they do it at a super, super high level and all the rest of it. And, and, and that's the thing. Our world is filled with people. We admire each other. We are fans of each other. We know that nobody, you know, especially living in L.A., you know, my kid went to school with all sorts of famous actors and, you know, Macy Gray's kids and, you know, just like the famousest people you can imagine. And I always literally laugh when somebody introduces me to somebody and says, this is Tierney Sutton. She's a famous jazz singer. And I just laugh and I'm like, okay, look at the face of this. You're introducing me to somebody that has no idea who I am, has never heard my name, doesn't know anything. And you're telling them that I'm famous. Well, that's ridiculous. I'm not famous. Like, I'm just not, you know? And, um, and that's totally okay. <laughs> you know, it's just not what this thing is about that we do. Traveling, traveling, traveling Looking for something, what can it be? Oh, I hate you some, I hate you some I love you some Oh, I love you when I forget about me I want to be strong, I want to laugh along I want to belong to the living Alive, alive, I want to get up and jive I want to wreck my stockings in some jukebox dive Do you want, do you want, do you want to dance with me, baby? Do you want to take a chance Of maybe finding some sweet romance with me, baby? Well, come on, do 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 I wanted to ask you about this upcoming album, Paris Sessions 2. Paris Sessions 1 uh, came out in 2014. So we're about eight years after that, even though I'm sure it wasn't recorded in 2022. Albums are seldom recorded in the same year they're released. What made you feel like you wanted to come back for a second round and you had more to explore in this context, which we should say is you on voice with the beautiful guitarist Serge Merlot, and you also have a special guest, which is the, I would say, flautist. Other people up north will say flautist. Uh, whatever floats your boat. Hubert Laws, who is? Hubert Laws, yeah. I mean? I mean, forget it. Forget it, forget it. And and Kevin Axt, who's a big part of this record, because he, on the first um, pair of sessions, which was just Serge, me, and Kevin, uh, Kevin invented a certain kind of uh, bass playing, cording using um, a acoustic bass guitar and cording it, and it's really really beautiful. And he does that a little bit on this this album as well. Um, but what made me? I, I'll probably be making Paris Sessions records for a long time because now I'm married to Serge Merlot and I'm spending half my time in in, in Paris, and. Um, you know, any relationship that, that we have as musicians, you're affected by the musicianship and the, the, the specific chemistry of the players involved. And when I first sang with Serge, which was in 2012, um, I was struck by sort of the um, classic, um, the classic uh, electric guitar style that he had that reminded me of some of the great 
um, guitar vocal records of the 50s and 60s. Uh, just just a real um, solid, rooted in tradition style of playing electric guitar. And at that time, he was playing a Gibson 175 and just with this really, really buttery tone and lyrical phrases and all the rest of it. And I was preparing to do the Joni Mitchell record. And I wanted to do a couple of standards that Joni had done. And so two things with Serge ended up going on the record. One was Don't Go to Strangers, which is still one of my favorite things that I've recorded. Um, and Serge is doing these beautiful lyrical uh, responses to my phrases. And, and then um, Answer Me My Love, which were two things that were standards, but I first heard Joni's versions of those before I heard Dinah Washington and the, the original versions of those. So Joni taught me those standards. And so in addition to doing her compositions, I, I wanted to do those uh, two standards that I had learned from her. And um, I wanted to do it with, with Serge and Kevin. And so Kevin came over to Paris. We went into the studio in Paris and we recorded those two and also um, don't worry about me. And then we just kept recording. And we just recorded things that uh, Serge had taught me just that week, like Beja Flor, beautiful uh, Brazilian song, and um, Estate, and a bunch of other things. And so we just, we just recorded a, a full-length album. And so after the Joni record came out with a few of those things on, we decided to release the entire thing. And one reason that I wanted to do it was that my record label that has been putting out my records uh, since American Road, actually, um, told me that of all the records that I've done in, for them since American Road, the best-selling was Paris Sessions, <laughs> this little quiet record with bossa novas and ballads and just sort of storytelling and good songs. And by this time, I had been working with Hubert Laws, and we had a trio for a while, uh, about 15 years ago, or 10 years ago, with Larry Kuntz, Hubert, and myself. And we had started to develop some things where Hubert and I would do this unison, where Hubert's playing alto flute, and I'm singing wordlessly with him. And it's just one of my favorite things I've ever done in my life, and I really wanted to get that down on record. And we had tried but had failed. And so once the pandemic happened and my record label said, hey, you, you guys should do another Paris Sessions record. And by this time, Serge and I were married and that was good because we could travel and be together. If we hadn't gotten married at the end of 2019, we would have been SOL. But we were able to spend half of the pandemic in Paris and half of the pandemic here. And so I knew that we had more than enough uh, material. In fact, you know, we've got a whole another record worth. And I knew that I wanted to have Hubert. And uh, so it was kind of a really, really natural thing. And I'm, I'm really pleased with it. It's a beautiful collaboration. Hearing you in that context is also lovely because I'm such a big fan of your work with the with Christian, who's a pianist. Mm. But you hear different things within the palette of your voice and your musicality and musicianship when you're paired with guitar instead. So it's a treat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there's there's nothing 
you know, there's nothing like the Tierney Sutton Band, and my band is a really specific animal. We're incorporated. We're legal partners. You know, we make all of our decisions about what we're going to do, including with the, the, the Clint Eastwood film. We signed that contract as a band. I mean, these the, the, the people involved had no idea what they were dealing with. They were like, what are you doing? And I've had people for, from the beginning of my career say, you can't do that. That's crazy. Why are you doing that? And I have no regrets. And so it's a, it's a musical marriage that continues and will continue. And I love the Tierney Sutton Band. But that band is an animal that is that band, you know? And so there's a different thing that happens when I'm kind of set to my own devices and I have a much more open palette to, to, to sing with. It's not better or worse. It's just a real different thing and it, it, um, it exercises different muscles. And so I would, I would think that Paris Sessions records are sort of more down to the bare bones of what the actual song is, you know? Um, the arranging elements are not nearly as ornate, although Serge does some really interesting things in arranging on this this project. But even so, th there there's there's much more of an idea of here is the the melody of this song, here is the story of this song. How can I get to the essence of it and and feel totally sincere in singing this song? Well, if we speak more about you and your relationship to songs. We were talking off air earlier, and I don't mean to be boastful, but I'm so fortunate to have heard you live in the US, in London, and in Cape Town, which I know is such a treat for Cape Tonians or South Africans who'd come to the Cape Town International Jazz Festival specifically to hear you. And part of what I love about hearing you live, Tierney, is that your in-between song speaking banter as, as we refer to it, is superb. I mean, even in this interview, people will listen to you and they'll say, gosh, she speaks with a beautiful turn of phrase. There are very few ums. There are very few you knows. There are, there are almost no likes. I mean, you're giving Kamala Harris a run for her money because for me, that's often when I think, Nikki, don't waft. Like, W-W-K-H-D. What would Kamala Harris do? And, I, and that focus in how you speak and communicate your thoughts is absolutely sublime and it's no different when you are talking on stage in a performance in between songs but it's not just how you speak it's the content of what you're saying and I was struck the first time I heard you about how careful you were in really giving credit to the composers and the lyricists of the songs that you were singing it's something that I always encourage other singers to really just concentrate on because I do think it it's one of the things that puts you in your own class. Well, you're, you're very, very kind. And I'm actually uh, surprised to hear you say all this for, for several reasons. One is my band will tell you that my onstage patter uh, developed a lot <laughs> over 30 years. And that when we first were touring, uh, one of the bass players was saying to me, man, I used to cringe. I didn't know what you were going to say. You know, and so I think that that has developed over the years. Um, and see, there was an um. And I, <laughs> I'll be really self-conscious now. But as the years have gone by, I've become very, very close. My nearest and dearest really friend in L.A. is the great lyricist Alan Bergman. And 
was Al Alan and Marilyn Bergman before she passed this this past January. And that relationship has made me uber conscious of what a good lyric is and who writes lyrics and who are the composers. I didn't used to be as conscious as I have become over the last 15 years. And that's partly because my sort of dream day gig for the last uh, over 15 years is that Alan and Marilyn called me up and said, hey, we have this song that we wrote with John Williams that no one's ever recorded. Would you do a demo for us? And so since probably 2004, yeah, maybe it's almost 20 years it's going to be now, uh, I've been recording these demos of songs, and it could be something by Dave Grusin, or it could be something by Lalo Schifrin, just all these great composers. And they're challenging, you know, huge amounts of um, range, tricky melodies. And I have the lyricist sitting there in the studio with me saying, please link this word to this word. Please phrase it this way. And that has been a tremendous gift. So I screw up all the time about who wrote what, and I make a lot of mistakes about that stuff. But I have become more and more conscious of it as time has gone by. So thank you for that praise that maybe isn't always deserved. No, no. Well, it sounds like you've earned it because I think the takeaway, and this is great for other vocalists or just other band leaders or anybody who's having to do any in-between song patter on stage to take note of is the fact that it's an aspect of a live performance that can also be improved upon just as your ability to conduct a band or to take a really great improvised solo can be. And it's so often, I think, neglected and people just think, well, I either have it or I don't. And they don't take any time to think about, actually, no, you could script it initially, you know, or whatever it is. This is interesting because I remember when I was first starting to tour a lot, I thought, Am I being lazy about this? Should I ask Alan and Marilyn to write something for me? Because Barbara Streisand doesn't improvise anything she says between songs. She makes sure that she's got it planned out. And I understand why. If I was playing for 18 gajillion people, I would probably do the same thing. Although I figured out early in my touring that there were seemed to be two kinds of performers that I would see. And one kind had a kind of game face, you know? They had a performance game face. And when they were on stage, they were in a certain kind of zone. And, and to my way of experiencing them, they almost have a little bit of a mask. And everything is scripted and really smooth but I don't feel them personally. Then there are other people who are themselves. And it's not always super consistent, but you feel their hearts. And Kate McGarry is one of these people. Carmen Bradford is one of these people. There's a lot of these people in our world. And I decided early on that I hoped to be one of those people, that I didn't want to totally script it because every night you're going to feel different. You're going to have a different set of emotions. And if you can share that 
truth with the audience in that moment, you're going to have a better show. And as time went on, my band started to to realize that that was a good thing. And I realized that if you can make the audience laugh, it was a really good thing for the flow of the performance. And when when the band played Carnegie Hall, uh, which was a while ago now, I came on stage and the first thing, and Christian later said, you know, that everybody was really nervous. We were really nervous. And I came out on stage and I, I looked out on, uh, on the audience and I said, this is so much nicer than the last time I had this dream. And, and the audience laughed. And I hadn't planned it. It's just what popped into my head. And Christian said, after you made the audience laugh, I knew it was going to be okay. And this is, I think, an important thing. So if you try to be austere, and this is, this is what the member of my band was talking about, those really cringy shows were when I was trying to be super austere and trying to not say anything that would expose me. And if you're in that mindset, you might be okay, but something is missing to me. That is such a gem. I thought you were going to say that you went out on the stage at Carnegie Hall and you said, this is so much nicer than the last venue I played. <laughs> well, it was not nicer than the next venue we played because one of, you know, when you talk about the ups and downs, the day after we played Carnegie Hall, we played a gig in Dayton, Ohio, that was at a club called Gillies, which I think doesn't exist anymore, that was in the Greyhound bus station. So we went from Carnegie Hall one night to the Greyhound bus depot in Dayton, Ohio the next day. And all and you could think was, I'm so glad to be doing the thing. I'm doing the no, thing. And, and it was. And the, and the guy who was the, um, the, uh, the owner of, of Gillies didn't know who we were and was really annoyed and um, didn't know if anybody was going to come. And part of the deal uh, for the gig was that we got a chicken box for dinner. So we have a running joke about the chicken box. So it's glamour. It's all glamour. But, you know, we had a great time. Thank gosh for Gillies for, for keeping jazz musicians humble. That's right. In my public mood 
count the boats returning to the sea. I count the boats returning to the sea. Hello, a quick note from me, Nikki, to tell you how you can best support the jazz session if that's something that tickles your fancy. This podcast is made possible thanks to the support of listeners who are so enthused by these conversations that they head over to Patreon to join the Jazz Session's Patreon page. They become patrons. If you go to thejazzsession.com slash join, that's thejazzsession.com slash join, it will link you to the Patreon page and you'll be able to find out more about how you you can become a member for as little as $5 per month today. So please do head over to that link if that sounds interesting and enticing to you. There are all sorts of perks to be had and there are only two tiers of membership, $5 a month or $10 a month take your pick. The other way that you can support the podcast is by rating or reviewing the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This takes a matter of seconds, rating it to be specific, and it helps with the podcast's visibility on web pages, in searches. It helps other folks who might be interested in these conversations find the podcast. Really important and invaluable in the world of podcasting. The other way you can support this show is by tweeting, Facebooking, or Instagramming about the show at large or about specific episodes that you know you really enjoy so please do feel free to give the show a shout out and if you tag the jazz session on any of those social media platforms I'll be sure to repost your wonderful praise and gladly so so thank you for listening and for any support that you may show the podcast now or in the near future now back to my conversation with Tierney if we go back to the the song and the songwriters so you've covered I'm so glad you mentioned Alan and Marilyn Bergman your renditions of their songs are some of my favorites on my way to you is just a surefire way for me to have a really good cathartic cry so thank you for that I turn to it often but you also then dedicated we mentioned them briefly earlier two whole albums to the music of Sting and the music of Joni Mitchell what is it about these writers or great songwriters and composers in general that that speaks to you when you hear a song and you say that's a great song what is it that you're reacting to well you know i have to say that i've learned to really question that a lot and i think i think a lot of what i look at is based on my particular education and my particular cultural background. So I don't pretend that I have found all the great songs. You know, my son has uh, taken taken me under his wing to educate me about people like J. Cole and, you know, the new the new artists that are doing some really wonderful things. For me, I became sort of obsessed with jazz after I was 20, 21 years old. And as time went by, I started to notice that some songs were better crafted than other songs. And when you're telling a story and singing a lyric, you know, a hundred times a year on stage, you start to notice the ones that 
have a little something extra. Uh, Carol Sloan once said, the great standards are like a garden, and every time you w step into it, you see a new flower. And I think that that's true. The really, really super well-crafted songs have all these wonderful things in them. And when I'm working with students, sometimes I'll say, what's your favorite part of this song? And tell me why. And it might be, you know, the harmonic shift when the bridge goes to the last A section. It could be the lyric on the second A section. It could be the fact that it's not A-A-B-A form and it's got something unusual going on. But I think it's important to pick something you love because you can't serve something that you don't love. And so I don't pretend that the things that I love are the, the, the best, but I know I love them. And so when you look at Joni Mitchell and her craft as a songwriter, it's second to nobody. And, uh, you know, and Sting's, Sting songs, I'm just about to do a couple of tour dates and I just want to sing a couple of Sting songs in those tour dates because they're talking to our times. Driven to Tears, I want to do it. Uh, Fragile, these are great great songs. So for me, you know, I've spent my life immersed in the Great American Songbook and not a lot of things really can stand beside that and feel strong. But some things can and I know that there's a whole bunch that I haven't looked at yet that can also be worthwhile. Being so attuned to the lyrics of a song and being in close proximity to some of the finest lyricists and, and songwriters of our time, does it ever make you want to try your hand at it? Or does it make you think, no, no, leave it to the experts? Well, I've done it just a little bit. You know, I, 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 wrote, the, I wrote a song for Sully. I, 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 wrote, I wrote two lyrics for that, uh, one of them with a writing partner, uh, J.B. Eckel, who's a wonderful, wonderful songwriter that I've known for many years. And when I went about writing those, and I've written a couple of things from time to time. For me, it's a matter of something comes to me quickly, and then I edit it and edit it and edit it. And I have one lyric on the upcoming album, which is a, a lyric I wrote to Zingaro. Um, and you know, it's not authorized. I'm not going to make any money from it, but I wanted to have it down. And it's one of the first things that I wrote many years ago. Um, but I have to say that being close to such great craftspeople gives me pause. And when I was working on Sully, I brought the lyrics that I had finished to one song, which is uh, Arrow, that I wrote with Christian Jacob. And I, I wrote those lyrics myself. And um, I brought the lyrics to Alan and Marilyn, and I remember sitting in their office, you know, with their three Academy Awards and their all this stuff in their office. And I and I handed over a, a piece of paper to each of them, and I said, "Okay, here are the lyrics that I've written. I want you guys to read them. I'm not afraid that Clint won't use them. I'm afraid that Clint will use them, and they're horrible." And I've made some horrible mistake that is going to bug you every time you hear it. So can you please read these 
and tell me if I've done anything horribly, horribly wrong. So, and they were like, that's okay. That could be better. And, you know, they, they edited me a little tiny bit. And, uh, and I remember Alan added one word, um, which, I, which made it much more poetic um, on, the, on the Sully, um, the, the Flying Home, which was the theme, the theme song from Sully. Uh, we cannot hold the morning, uh, morning. He said, he said morning. So I said, yeah, that's a good word. So, you know, it does, it does make me really reluctant, I have to say, and I have to kind of get over that. I have to figure out a way to shake that off and try. I think for me though, the tricky part is that it's really, really time consuming for me to write lyrics. I'm not quick at it and I'm not super gifted at it. So, and maybe I would be if I just forced myself to do it more. When the, when the Sully situation came up, I took a deep breath and I said to myself, now is the time and you have to make yourself do it. And so we had these little themes we were working on, Clint's theme and Christian had written a couple of themes. And so what I did was I literally locked myself in my apartment I listened to the audiobook like while I was showering cuz you know this all was going on over a period of you know a couple of weeks. We went and did the music and then I was like okay I have to write a lyric to this before the orchestra se session happens. And I listened to the audiobook of Sully's memoir whatever I can't remember what he what it, what it's called but and so I'm I'm literally in the shower listening to this whole thing to get his perspective. And then I would lay down on my bed and play over and over again the themes and try to come up with stuff. And I have these legal pads with the little pieces of each theme. I mean, I'm just really slow. <laughs> I'm not gifted at this. When I think of how easily singing came to me as opposed to this, I know what comes easily and what comes really hard. And writing lyrics comes really hard for me. So interesting to hear you talk about it. I mean, I would say based on merely the quality of your in-between song banter, I would love to hear you do more more writing. But at the same time, I also am highly admiring of the cautiousness with which you proceed. Because just recently, and this is, I do want to preface this by saying there's nothing malicious about this. This is purely analytical. And this is a conversation I would have with another musician, certainly another vocalist for sure because I think that analytical thinking within our community is important as opposed to just saying, oh, it's lovely, you know, or I don't like it. Well, why don't you like it? So I do just want to preface that so people don't think that I'm a malicious so-and-so. But there are a couple of vocalists who put out albums recently who I think are master interpreters and they have now expanded their reach to include original writing, uh, both composing and lyrics. And and, and it's perfectly nice, um, but it's not particularly good. And to my mind, it's a little half-baked, right? It's missing a bridge or it's kind of missing something that makes it sophisticated. And it's standing alongside interpretations of songs by, I mean, people like Sting, Kate Bush, and other masters of the American Songbook. So I would love to know, because I would ask you this privately, but actually, why not ask you on this platform because I think it's a really fascinating and important discussion. 
what are your thoughts on that? Because you're also aware of the music that's being offered. I hear you. And, and, and I think um, the word distinguished comes to mind. You know, when I pick a song, there's a lot to choose from. And so if I'm going to introduce a song, uh, especially one that people haven't heard before, I want it to be distinguished. I want it to be something special and beautiful. The new album has a, a song by a wonderful singer-composer, Ginga. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's a master. He's, he's from, uh, I think, from the mountains of Brazil, and he's a guitar master and singer, and his compositions, they're just gorgeous. They don't have words. Uh, Somebody might have added words to this, but I just sing it wordlessly. But it's just distinguished and beautiful. It's beautiful. And I'm happy to do it because it's beautiful. Uh, in terms of, you know, I, I could sit down and, and do an album of my original music. I probably could. But I don't know how good it would be. And if I don't feel it's really good, I'm not gonna, and, and that's, that's, you know, that's subjective, of course. And people need to have a way to start. And I, I don't begrudge people at all, you know, putting their, their toe in and, and, and expanding. I just am too scared. And I, and what you just said, you know, that's definitely how I feel. So, but, it, you know, it's the whole question of ego comes in with that. You know, like, here's the question. Is it egotistical? Is it more full of ego not to try? Or is it more full of ego to put it out there? I mean, I, you know, I, that's, that's, that's a, a perfectly legitimate question for everybody. I don't know, you know, who am I to say what's good and what's not good? I know what moves me. And if I wrote a song that that I felt resonated really solidly within me, and I've written a couple of lyrics that I thought were okay and said pretty much what I wanted to say, uh, I'll include them, you know. But I understand what you're saying. And that's an incredibly um, generous and, again, thoughtful answer from you. But I love these discussions because I also think, I mean, gosh, to have lyric and songwriting feedback from Alan and Marilyn Bergman, you know, if those are your teachers, it doesn't really get much higher. But I think it says so much about you as a person and as somebody who is curious and so into the process, which if you're not into the process, there's nothing really else in terms of being a, a musician. The fact that you would go to them and say, give me feedback. And I think that that is also probably key because I often get the sense that especially vocalists who are releasing original songs on their records, I often think this is kind of there, but if they'd gotten some feedback or if they'd asked before saying, okay, this is now finished and I'm going to document it on a record. So it's important it's part of the process maybe yeah you know and i think something that's that's been running through my mind lately is that all of us singers we 
we have strengths and we have weaknesses. And we know what those are, or we don't know what those are. Uh, hopefully we do. Hopefully we have some idea of those things. And I've often in the last few months been thinking I'd love to do an exchange with certain singers I know who have a much more advanced harmonic uh, concept than I have, who are much more advanced in how they scat, who are much more advanced in many things, but I would love to exchange a lesson and just dig into pitch and tone with them. And there are people that I really, really admire, but the fact that they're not able to sing really solidly in tune messes it all up for me. And, and, and yet, there are so many things that they do that I couldn't imagine doing. And I admire them so much. And I wish there was a way to, without being insulting, you know, say, hey, I really admire you, but... <laughs> <laughs> just a little little thing because you know but it's it's really interesting and I'm sure there are basic things I mean I got feedback years ago um, from um, uh, from from Fred Hirsch and he was saying uh, that he that he thought I was holding notes too long at the end of phrases and I thought about it and I decided he was right. I was not singing as conversationally as I really needed to. I was thinking about, you know, so there's always another side. There's always another side to everything. Tell me your story, I'll tell you mine. Sing me your song, I'll follow line by line. Draw me near, let me hear the things you've treasured. Patient as falling snow, standing inside the questions, only guessing by what truths our souls are measured. Each of us rising from worlds unknown. Within your trials, I see my own. Still there are journeys that are yours alone. You were born for the stars to weather true as a winter wind you face the moment bravely you and I we're on our own and yet together walking a path we can't define you were once referred to I can't remember who it was by and it was a compliment. I was asking about you as a teacher and 
they were like, she's superb, but you must know she is a pitch Nazi. And that was high praise. And you're nodding your head. People can't see this. That's I, every time I teach a lesson, I tell the person before we start that that was my nickname at USC was the pitch Nazi. Okay. <laughs> and the reason, and I, you know, the, the interesting thing about that is that, um, you know, I just did this record after two years of not singing, not being on the road, I had a lot of trouble trying to center, you know, so I, my obsession with being in tune does not come from the sense that I'm always in tune. It comes from the, the, the idea that I have to think about it every single second. And when I am, the feeling of it is so wonderful and so freeing that when something is not in tune, it just, it really bothers me. So maybe it's kind of a form of OCD that I have. I don't know. But again, I am as crazy with myself as I am with everybody else. And there are things, you know, I don't like to do m much fixing on my records. Uh, a very, very, very little. And most of my records before this last one, this last one has a little bit because Hubert and I had to record remotely. We couldn't be together. And so the, the sound that we can make live when we're doing that unison is one thing. But doing it uh, remotely is another thing. And so I did have to do some there. I, I, my, my husband says I shouldn't even tell anybody that, but I'm, I'm not here to lie. I know that Hubert and I can do it live. And, and, and when, we, when we rehearse even, I feel a little stoned, you know? I really do. It makes me a little high. It's like I'm going, and I'm just right inside this gorgeous note that he makes and this gorgeous sound. And just, it feels surreal. And so there was no way I was going to let the vagaries of how we had to record mess that up. Well, I was going to ask you how much pitch correction you do in post-production, and you've answered that. I was also going to say that if you were to voluntarily, I mean, gosh, if you were to reach out to me and just say, I just wanted to give you a few tips about pitch, I would be like, yes, please, thank you very much, and more. What are some of your tips when you are dealing with, a, let's say, a, a, you know, a student of yours, and you're like, okay, we need to get this pitch? Well, what I've noticed, and, and just for the record, you know, uh, there were specific difficulties with this last record, but every other record I've made, uh, I think there's, uh, I my credo has always been I'll re-sing it until it's in tune. I'll re-sing it. That's always been my credo. And now that doesn't even really exist. Like, y you know, you you kind of, when you when you download the software, it doesn't even really want you to do that. It just wants you to pitch correct. It just, it's really crazy. It's kind of, kind of, kind of weird. Um, but the best thing that I can say is that I have noticed that all the great super in tune singers, and you can, you can just kind of list them all. It's like, you know, Bobby McFerrin or Nat King Cole or Natalie Cole or Nancy Wilson, or Aretha Franklin, or um, Joni Mitchell, or um, Frank Sinatra, uh, Peggy Lee, 
uh, Luther Vandross, you know, anybody that you can think of that just is always spot on. What they have in common is, uh, and uh, uh, Shirley Horn. What they have in common is they have a lot of mask resonance. You may think they're singing in their throat, but they are not. Uh, it's all up here. And so they've learned to do that in such a way. And I think part of that is when the, when the, the note is resonating, it's right here next to your ear. And so rather than down here or in your chest, and, it, and it's, a, it's a technique. Um, I just did this, this thing about Peggy Lee with her granddaughter, Holly Foster Wells, and just going over all of these tracks, these live videos of Peggy. She's really in tune, really in tune. And her sound is here. You don't think of it. You don't realize it because you think of it as growly and in your chest. But if there are a few singers, and I'm not going to say who they are, there's a few singers who have that kind of sound. They're in their throat and in their chest, and their pitch is not as, as solid. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't sit in the center of the note. And so I've found it to be a pretty absolutely consistent thing. One of the greatest singers I've ever heard um, is Rochelle Farrell. I don't know if you're hip to her, but she's just a goddess. And one of the things she said, she gave a workshop uh, uh, at a college I was teaching at for a while, LA Music Academy. And she said that she thinks about pitch every note that comes out of her mouth. She never doesn't think about it. And I think it's, it's the same for all the singers that I mentioned. I'm sure that there was a relaxed vigilance going on with all of those people. And the tone has to come out freely and um, it has to hang without your chords being overly, um, overly taxed from doing it. And there's, there's exercises that I have to teach people to do this, but it really should be the kind of thing where you can hear your note vibrating in unison to one of the piano notes, you know, or, or the bass note and to disappear into it. A lot of singers do just have a simple problem where they don't have the band loud enough and they have themselves too loud so they, and they're uncomfortable with their sound disappearing. And if your sound is really in tune, it's often going to kind of disappear because it's, there's going to be a oneness. And if you're uncomfortable with that, you're going to be uncomfortable with being in tune. And so a lot of singers just kind of hang not really in tune because they're uncomfortable disappearing. So it's, it's a really interesting thing. And there's sort of a spiritual... Um, is there, it's a very interesting metaphorical thing for unity and oneness and ego. And it's, it's kind of a crazy thing to really get deep into. Oh my gosh, Cheney, I could talk to you all day. Now, I mean, I was in my element at the beginning of this interview, but I'm totally sorry, listeners. I'm totally in my element now with the, with the vocal technique stuff. And also I'm looking as Cheney is um, talking about 
the sound being in the mask, she's also pointing to her most beautiful cheekbones, uh, which is something I'm always aware of when I watch you sing that and the formation of, you know, the lips and, you know, what is helping and what is not. I, I do want to ask you, because we're now in this territory, I wanted to ask you another technical question. And it's so interesting. And we apologize to everybody that does not give a rat's ass. But it's so interesting that Fred gave you that that feedback about the sustaining of the notes. I wanted to ask you about two things. The one is your thoughts on straight tone, vibrato, the marriage of both, and how you're aware of using both within your singing. And the other was your approach to diphthong. <laughs> wow. Hello. This is Vocal Minutia with your host, <laughs> Nikki Schrera. I wanted to figure that out because I've seen it in writing all the time and I never think of how to say it. Schrera? Yeah, or you could go full German. Schrera. But that's um, talkable steer. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, listeners. i Nikki. I did preface it. Maybe we'll make this bonus content. I have you here, so. Yeah, why not? Um, You know, vibrato is an interesting thing because what instrumentalists will say to um, jazz vocalists that are coming up is, don't use any vibrato. We don't use vibrato. And they're wrong. They're instrumentalists. They don't know what they're talking about. Listen to some Sarah Vaughan. Listen to some Peggy Lee. Listen to some Ella Fitzgerald. You're going to hear vibrato all the time. So that is a lie. That is something that jazz instrumentalists think they're being hip. And it is wrong. And if you're singing with no vibrato, it means your notes are not free. It means that, you know, it's okay to, to sing with a lot of straight tone. It's fine. But if you can't have vibrato, then something is not, is, is being trapped. And I've had a really, some really, really wonderful experiences with uh, students where in just a lesson or two, I've gotten them to find vibrato. And it's really, really, it's just one of those things where I'm really, really happy about it. And then once you find your vibrato, everybody has a natural vibrato, whatever that is. And then you figure out how to use it, go to straight tone, go back to vibrato, how to potentially slow it down. Uh, Peggy Lee had a just gorgeous vibrato and she used it all the time. It's just this really small, slow but short vibrato that she did that people would call sort of a purr and it was just lovely and it was really really um good technical singing that that she did uh and and it's easy to miss that when someone is as subtle as peggy lee was it's 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 really easy to not realize how hard it is to do what she was she was doing same with shirley horn oh god bless shirley horn always spotlessly in tune, um, beautiful vibrato control. So I think that whole sort of mythology that there's no vibrato, yeah, tell that to Sarah Vaughn, my friend. I mean, there's vibrato for days. Um, so I think that that's one thing. Forget the idea that there is no vibrato. And then just learn over time to control it. I just was doing a gig a couple of weeks ago with a pianist that I'd gone to, to college with that I've known for, for years and years and years, Bill Anschell, and he said, oh, by the way, you know, I, I really like what's happened with your vibrato in your last couple of records. And I was like, okay. And, and I think I kind of know what he means. I think in my, my early records, my vibrato was sort of tighter. 
and faster, and it's kind of slowed down over the years a little bit. Um, but um, yeah, so that's that's my vibrato thing. Is that I think it's 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 usually maligned more than it should be, because better you sing really in tune and have control of your sound than force yourself not to have vibrato. And often vibrato brings a note into tune. You know, it'll be kind of like pointing in a downward direction and then the vibrato will come and it'll center. So to get it, get experience with that. And dip, dip thongs. Well, I always say that I have an ooh or an e behind anything that I'm sustaining. Um, and in fact, virtually every vowel in my brain I'm going from something that could be an E or something that could be an OO. Uh, like, like if I'm singing the word love, which we have to do a lot, there's an OO behind it, even if it's, even if I'm not, I'm like back here, there's an OO, but here it's a, uh, uh, you know, so it's tricky. Yeah, but I mean, I, I will say I'm glad that you do still sustain um, some notes and that you didn't take Fred's advice completely, literally into heart because part of what I enjoy is hearing the the vowels when you sing them, when they're sustained and um, hearing how they close out. I, I find it... I find it fascinating and I find it so much a part of you. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I really like that... To me, it's it is a kind of spiritual spiritual sensation to just sustain a note and feel where that is, and and that's why on the new record I I, I take such pleasure in the stuff that I'm doing with with Hubert because it's just all it is is sustained notes trying you know and he's such a master when we do it live he'll match my vibrato and I tried to do that as much as I could on uh, for the record as well because we in when we're live. It's really easy for us to just go and then just match vibrato and look at each other and, you know, sustain until we breathe. And, oh, it's just a wonderful thing. But I think that the record it gives, gives a good indication of what it's like. You remember me when the west wind moves upon the fields of bar. Forget the sun in its jealous sky as we walk in fields of gold. So she took her love for a gaze a while upon the fields of barley. In his arms she fell as her hair came down among the fields.
sky as we lie in fields of wool. See the west wind move like a lover's soul upon the fields of barley. Tierney, I heard you talking with Steve Davidson on The Playful Musician about your work as a producer and your work specifically with the vocalist Natalie Dessay. Could you tell us more about that? I love to produce. And it's one of the things that I have, I felt like, um, you know, yeah, I've, I've always taught for many years. My first student when I moved to LA was Gretchen when she was 16 years old. So, I mean, you know, and she was of course already just ridiculous. And I was just like, okay, we're gonna just, we're just gonna scat over Jamie Abersold's and it's gonna be nice. <laughs> you know, anyway, she's, she's my dear, dear, dear sweetie pie and I, I'm so proud of her and I love her and she's great. But so I've, I've taught all this time, but when I did the, the, the project with Natalie, that's, I, I, I thought, oh, I love producing because it's Natalie, because she's great. And she's taken to this stuff like a duck to water and she's a friend and all the rest of it. Well, then I produced some people that were not Natalie and had some real issues, but I loved it. I just had the best, best time. And I realized, wow, I, I, I could totally, totally do this. I, it's really, really fun for me to like take myself out of it. And sometimes I can, Im I can imagine, uh, I mean, I thought, oh, the reason that I wasn't imagining myself singing all these songs that, that, that I produced Natalie with is because it was Natalie and she's so great. I think normally if I was, if I was producing somebody um, that I didn't have such a super awe of, I, I might wish that I was singing them. And no, that's not true. It's like I have a different kind of way of thinking when I'm producing. And it's so fun to sit there and be like, how can I help this person just like kick ass, do the best vocal they can do? What am I hearing on that note? Okay, how can we phrase that? Maybe you should breathe there. Maybe this key is not as good as we thought it was. Uh, you know, maybe try this, this part rubato. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just really, really fun for me to do. And, and I think I'm really good at it. And so I hope as time goes forward, I will be able to get uh, more work as a producer in the studio. Because I, I really do dig it. It's, it's really, really fun. Well, you are a formidable teacher. And so it actually doesn't surprise me that you would be an equally outstanding producer and enjoy it the way that you clearly enjoy educating and problem solving. I feel, I think it's an extension. Yeah, I mean, Natalie is pretty much my favorite opera singer. And I am not a big student of the opera world, but here and there, I hear people. And in 2012, Michelle Legrand came to hear my band in Paris and brought Natalie with him because they were preparing to do a bunch of work together. And this was really, really special because by this time I was very, very close to Alan in Maryland. They had invited Michelle to the show 
and they were preparing to record a project that had been in the works for 25, 30 years, which was a song cycle uh, that was originally written for Barbara Streisand. It was the life cycle of a woman called Between Yesterday and Tomorrow. And it was from birth to death. The first track is called Birth and the last track is called Death. And they're gorgeous and everything in between. And Barbara was too superstitious and didn't want to record it. She didn't want to record Birth and she didn't want to record Death. So she recorded a couple songs from the song cycle, which are gorgeous songs, gorgeous songs. There's one that she recorded called Wait. That is one of those forget about it songs. Just so beautiful. It's my favorite uh, on the project. And she had recorded Between Yesterday and Tomorrow and one other, I can't remember which. So it's 14 songs. Some of them were new. And I got to sit with Alan and Marilyn and go through them line by line by line. And then I got to go to Paris and work with Natalie and bring their guidance. And first we had the orchestra session at Air Sound in London uh, with incredible orchestra. And it was at the very end of Michel's life. Uh, he passed not long after this, this record was completed. And then we did the vocals and I, I produced. And it was a lot, of, a lot of my producing was just little subtleties of English pronunciation. Natalie is such a great singer. But this was very deep for me because I was able to give guidance about brand new songs that no one had ever sung before with the advice and guidance of the lyricists. So, you know, being that deep into something is just a joy. So it was an incredibly great project. And in the meantime, my fiance was in Paris. And so Sony flew me to Paris a couple of times and that was nice. So it was all good. I don't know, it sounds very glamorous to me. We're back where we started, debating the actual glamour, not just of the jazz life, but of Tierney Sutton's jazz life. <laughs> very, very glamorous. Well, it was so glamorous that by the end of that session, I got super, super, super sick and had to cancel a gig. I was supposed to go from Paris to Nova Scotia to do a concert, and I got the flu. Back when flu was a regular thing that didn't absolutely terrify you and I lost my voice it was one of the only times I've ever had to cancel a gig but I was just too 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 sick and uh, there was a DVD made about the making of the uh, the album and I'm on there and I, I look like death warmed over and I'm like ah, yeah, yeah Natalie is a great singer <laughs> so it's it's sort of glamorous until you get really really sick Sounds like you were really repping jazz, though. I mean, that's they're, they're looking at her and being like, oh, yeah, she comes from the jazz world. So that's jazz liquor. <laughs> right, right, right. Tierney, I just adore talking to you. I could talk to you all day. Thank you for taking so much time with me, Nikki. I, I love that you're doing this, and um, I can't wait to hear your music, and I can't wait to spend more time with you in London or in Toronto or in New York or in South Africa. I mean, thank you for your time, Tierney. This has just been an embarrassment of musical riches, so thank you. April in Paris Chestnuts in blossom Holiday table
Gigantic thanks to this week's guest, Tierney Sutton. Tierney's new album, Paris Sessions 2, comes out on the 6th of May 2022, and I will make a note of all the tracks that were played throughout our conversation in the show notes for this episode. I do want to add that those tracks come both from this new album, but also from previous recordings, since we had a lot to catch up on since she was last on the jazz session almost 10 years ago. A huge thank you to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music of this show. You're welcome to follow The Jazz Session on Twitter at Jazz Sesh and on Facebook and Instagram at The Jazz Session. There is also a YouTube page to which you can subscribe if you want to watch video excerpts of my conversations with The Jazz Session's guests. A huge thank you to the patrons over at thejazzsession.com slash join. Head there today if you want to become a patron member and thank you to the listeners for tuning in and to any support that you may shower upon this show whether it's telling a friend family or four-legged pal about how much you enjoy these conversations my name is nikki schrera and i will see you next week for another conversation with an astounding jazz musician about their music and their process here on the jazz session